0: Now, if you remember, obviously Revelation written by John. John, one of the twelve, is the only one of the twelve who wasn't martyred. And the only reason for that was that rather than kill John, they banished him to the island of Patmos. Now, uh, at the time when he was banished, John was working, uh, ministering at the church at Ephesus. Now, if you remember, the seven churches are Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And the founding church was Ephesus. It was founded probably by Paul. It might have been... Uh, Aquila and Priscilla Um, Paul was certainly the first full-time pastor there so it had a pretty good background the next pastor was Timothy so you know they did pretty well to begin with but by the time of Revelation by the time that John was ministering there um, quite a few years later so John was arrested whilst he was at uh, um, Ephesus and he was banished um, to Patmos it was hard labour it wasn't just the fact that he was a ...stuck on an island and he couldn't see anyone... ...he would have had to work... ...and he was an old man by this time... around about ninety five when uh, Revelation was written... ...so it was hard labour... ...and he's there... ...and he's banished... ...and eventually he will die there... ...now at that point... ...he writes the book of Revelation... ...we'll see why in a moment... ...but no book in the whole Bible... ...really reveals the, the glory of God and Jesus Christ... Are ...any more splendour... ...than this particular book... And at the same time, no book in the Bible, I don't think there's no book, that's been more misunderstood, misinterpreted and, and neglected than this particular book. And that's despite the fact, and this is shocking when you think about it, that it begins with a blessing. It says in chapter 1, verse 3, blessed is the one who reads and understands this book. And it ends with a blessing, chapter 22, verse 7, blessed is the one who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. It's the only book in the Bible that begins and ends with a promise of blessing to the ones who read it and understand. So it's certainly worth reading, because you will definitely get blessed, because God promises that you're going to be blessed if you read this book and if you heed the words of the prophecy. Now the key to the book... It's found in chapter 1, verse 1. It says, the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what the book is about, obviously. The the word revelation, "apocalypse," it means a revealing. uh, and Sort of telling you something that you didn't know. So it's an apocalypse, it's an unveiling, it's a revealing. In other words, it's uncovering truth about Jesus Christ so far not known. So we're going to learn things as we go through the book of Revelation in this book that we wouldn't know if it weren't for this book that's what the word revelation means it's telling you something that you wouldn't know just by reading the rest of the Bible and it says the revelation which God gave to him to show his slaves the things which shortly must come to pass. I know if you're looking at your translation, you think it says servants there, but actually the Greek word is slaves, um, he says as well, and he sent and signified it by his angel to his slave John. I always like to, to use the word slave. I know it's not very politically correct these days, but that's what it says in the Greek. That's what it says in the Bible. That's what God says. So that's what we need to remember. So in other words, it's a glimpse... Of the future. It says, things which shortly must come to pass. God wanted to reveal Jesus Christ in full glory, so he sent a message with an angel to deliver to John. And verse 2 says, John wrote it down, it says, he bore witness of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Which brings us to verse 4. Now, I'm not going to go through literally every verse, I'm just going to skim over sections, but just at at the moment, in verse 4, you get a more formal introduction. John's starting the book, particularly, to be sent to seven churches in Asia Minor. Now, that would be what we now call Turkey. Now, these seven churches, and this is the first part of the book, are listed in chapters 2 and chapters 3. These were actual congregations at the time, so they are the real churches, real congregations and the initial recipients of this letter. So this letter, this book was first sent to these churches. Then others copied it and spread it around other Christians, and then throughout history, and eventually we got it ourselves today. So it was passed to all the other churches throughout history, and eventually to us. And these original seven churches were primarily founded as a result of Paul's ministry in Ephesus, as I was mentioning early. The first of these churches was Ephesus, and then the others, as this church witnessed, eventually... Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia and Laodicea, if you look on a map they sort of go round in a circle, they were founded as a result of the church in Ephesus. So Ephesus was the key church and the word of God spread out and then that's how the churches were founded. So we get this greeting, grace be to you and peace from the one who is and was and is to come. Now that's obviously God, that description doesn't fit anybody else. He was and is and is to come in the future. And then we also get, and then from the sevenfold spirit before the throne, now that's the Holy Spirit, the sevenfold Holy Spirit. Uh, the reason he's called the sevenfold Holy Spirit, that's a designation that you'll find in Isaiah chapter one, uh, 11, I should say, verse 2, where um, the seven unique ministries of the Holy Spirit are listed. Now that doesn't mean he only has seven ministries, it's just listed as an example of the Holy Spirit's ministries and that's why he's often called the sevenfold spirit, because of Isaiah 11 verse 2. Really speaks of the fullness of his ministry, so he's called the seven spirits before the throne. So far then, Revelation therefore is sent with greetings from God the Father, greetings from the Holy Spirit, and then in verse 5 it says, and also from Jesus Christ. So it's a letter from the Trinity. That sets it apart in a very marvellous and unique way. And then since it is a revelation of Jesus Christ, it goes on to describe Jesus as the first begotten of the dead. That doesn't mean he was the first one to rise from the dead. Um, that is obvious because he raised people from the dead himself before he rose from the dead and we see people even risen from the dead in the Old Testament it just means that of all those who are raised from the dead he is the first, the foremost, the chief, the greatest the the, the utmost one that's all that means then it says to him that loved us and washed us washed our sins in his blood uh, so this is a dedication this book is it's from the trinity by an angel, to John, written down, then passed on to us to read. And John reminds us that it was first sent to the seven churches. So it's coming from the Trinity, dedicated to Jesus, eventually to us. And then in verse 7 it tells us, Behold, he comes with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also who pierced him. And all the people of the earth shall wail because of him, even so are men." And what you do see there, what you get in there, right at the very beginning, is a glimpse of really the whole book. And a glimpse of what the whole book is about, it's all about the second coming of Jesus Christ. And that's why they wail. The people of the earth shall wail. It's all the people who aren't Christians, who haven't accepted him, who've rejected him. When he returns, it is too late. You have to accept him before the day that he returns, if you are alive at that time, because when he returns, that's it. And then it says in verse 8, that he's the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who is and was and is to come, the Almighty. Obviously signifying that Jesus is God in the flesh. So, basically, verses 4 to 8 are introductory information from the Trinity to the seven churches to be spread to all God's people through John dedicated to Jesus Christ dedicated to Almighty God so the book is basically about the second coming of Jesus Christ It's about his return and all the things that are going to happen leading up to that return but just before that we get a little bit of things that have happened already in verse 9 John gets the first of his visions, and it's a series of visions that God gives to John, and and he says, I, John, and he says that a lot in the book, if you notice, it's almost as if he was in a state of shock, it's almost as if he was saying, you know, I can't believe this, I, John, I, John, I'm the one who God has given this message, it's almost like he he has a bit of incredulity in his mind, why would God allow me to have this privilege to, to do this, it was me, John. Exiled to Patmos for proclamation of the gospel. And he says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. In other words, he was under the control of the Holy Spirit on a Sunday. One Sunday, it says, I heard behind me a great voice like a trumpet. And the voice said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches in Asia. So there, John gets his orders. Write it all down and send it initially to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. As I've said, they were actual cities, they all had churches, they all had local congregations. And then John turns, and in his vision, he sees Jesus Christ. I'm not going to go through all of the, the description of Jesus Christ, we have done that in great detail, but it's obviously clear who it is. He sees Jesus Christ moving amongst the seven golden lampstands, it says. Each lampstand represents a church. Seven in the Bible is usually the number of of fullness, of of completion. So what you hear is a, a representation of all the churches, and Jesus Christ is moving through the churches, ministering to the churches, not just at that time, but throughout history. And that will continue until the rapture. We'll see that in a moment. And in verse 16 it says, "...and he holds in his right hand seven stars." Now we know the seven stars are pastors of the churches because it says so in verse 20. And then we get the outline of the whole book, verse 19. Write the things which you have seen. What has he seen? Well, in the first vision he saw the things which are. That is, the things that are happening at that time. So, chapters 2 and 3 deal with the things that were happening at the time, 2,000 years ago. But then in chapter 4, all the way through to the end in chapter 22, we get the things which haven't yet happened, not even in our day. So chapters 2 and 3, things that happened. Chapters 4 to 22, things that haven't even happened yet. So there you have the outline of the book. And it all begins with Jesus Christ being revealed in, in what uh, is called the Church Age. That's the age that we're still in today. The age that started back then on the day of Pentecost, and it continues right up until the rapture. And Jesus, we're told, is moving amongst the churches, ministering to the churches. And in that ministry comes seven letters written to those individual churches, and that's where chapter 2 begins. We see the letters written to seven churches, as I say, real churches at the time but also representative of all churches throughout all history. So there are churches that did exist, but these letters are not just to those churches. These letters are to the churches that that particular church represents. We'll see that in a moment. In other words, in all the periods of church history, there have always been these kinds of churches. So Jesus isn't just talking to Ephesus when he talks about left your first love, he's talking to any church that's left their first love, and, and so on and so forth with each individual church. So that was relevant at the time and it's still relevant today. The first church is Ephesus, verses four and five, I have something against you, he says, because you've left your first love, remember therefore where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. This is a church that's Orthodox, they have the right teaching they had the right doctrine. Verse 2 says they wouldn't bear false apostles. However, they've lost their first love. They've, they've grown cold. It's a church that's existed in every age and just today. These are the churches that they have the right message. They do accept the Bible. But they're cold. They're indifferent about it. There's a problem. So that's the first example of a church and the first real church. The second is Smyrna, verses 8 to 11. Now this is a church that suffers persecution. It says in verse 10, Fear none of the things which you shall suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you in prison. You may be tried. You may have tribulation ten days. The ten days just signifies a brief period of time. But be faithful to death and I will give you the crown of life. There's nothing negative said about this church. Why? Because... A church under persecution is pretty much a pure church. It's purged by that persecution. People who might just show up for various reasons because it's uh, the the sort of moral thing to go to church, is because it's respectable to go to church. If there's persecution, they do not turn up. A persecuted church is a pure church and that's why this church is a good church. You're not going to stay around to be persecuted, abused or even killed unless you really mean it. So this is a church under persecution, and and again, there's always been churches like that, and continue to be so throughout the world. The third letter, in chapter 2, verse 2 to 17, is written to Pergamum, or sometimes called Pergamos. This, we read in uh, verse 15, is a worldly church. In verse 16, it says, repent, or else I'll come to you quickly and fight against you with the sword of my mouth. This is a church that Christ himself fights against. A church that's married to the world, and in all periods of church history, unfortunately, there are worldly churches. Churches where people don't come away from the world. Churches where they cater to the world. Perhaps they, they organise their church services to be what, what these days we call seeker-friendly. They're, they're trying to find out what people want and they'll give it to them, whatever it is. They don't stay true to the Bible. They don't stay true to God's Word. Then we see a fourth church, Thyatira, chapter 2, verse 18 to 21. This is a church that tolerates sin. In this particular church, they tolerated a Jezebel-like woman who was seducing people to commit fornication and eat things sacrificed to idols. But whatever the, the sin is, they tolerated it. And that's true of some churches today. Um, The whole thing in in Matthew 18, church discipline, you very, very rarely see churches enact in church discipline. When somebody's in sin, they usually just rather ignore it. But this is a church that did ignore it, and Jesus warns them, a church that tolerates sin, a church that wouldn't discipline sin, is a church that won't purify its ranks, and therefore Jesus isn't very happy. There are always churches like that. Then in chapter 3, we get the fifth one, Sardis. It's very easy to see what's wrong with this church. Jesus is very blunt. Verse 1, you have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. You have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. This is a dead church. It's not a real church at all. Everyone thinks it's a church. Everyone calls it a church. People are saying, yeah, that's a great church, but it's not. It's not even a church. No life, no growth, no fruit, no joy, nothing. And there are places like that. Then we get number 6. Chapter 3, verse 7 to 13. The church at Philadelphia. This is the good church, the faithful church. It says in verse 8, You've kept my word and have not denied my name. There you see the key to a good church. A good church is a church that keeps his word. All of the churches that do not keep his word are not good churches. They accept all of God's word, they live by God's word. And that's a faithful church. Unfortunately there are, I think there are not that many churches like that today. It's it's quite shocking. Then the final of the seven comes in chapter 3 verse 14 to the end of the chapter famous Laodicea, the apostate church, the unsaved church, the church of liberalism, the church that doesn't accept God's word doesn't live by God's word and Jesus says he's going to spew and and it is in the Greek, it's not spit, it's, it's spew you out of my mouth and he rejects such a church so you see, each of these is a message to that individual church but it's also a message to all churches everywhere do not be like, obviously Laodicea, be like Philadelphia and so on and so forth so the message to this church is to all churches throughout history then at the end of chapter 3 you have the end of the message to the churches when you come to the end of chapter 3 you don't read from now on in the book of Revelation the word church again until the very end in chapter 22 when it says go back and remember what I said to the church from this point the church isn't in Revelation the church isn't mentioned again Every one of the messages ends the same way. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That means that those churches um, and everyone who has spiritual ears, in other words all of God's people, anyone who can hear is a Christian. And that brings us to chapter 4, because we leave the church and now we look into the future. At this point, the church has left the planet. That's why the the, the word church isn't mentioned again in the book of Revelation, because the church has gone. God's people, at some point in the future, we don't know when, could be tomorrow, could be a hundred years. I doubt it will be a long time into the future, because I can't see this planet going the way it's going for a lot longer. But at some point, nobody knows, the church will be raptured. We read about it not just here in Revelation but in Thessalonians and other passages. So the rapture of the church where all the Christians leave the planet occurs sometime between chapter 3 and chapter 4. The church was on earth in chapter 2 and 3. Now all of a sudden, all of God's people have been taken up into heaven. All the Christians have been taken off the planet. So this hasn't happened yet. And John, in chapter 4, is also taken up to heaven. He's not there to stay, and it's a vision as well. Whether or not he actually went there is debatable, but he is taken up in a sense. And he sees the theme of heaven is worship. It says, after this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven... And the first voice I heard, as it were, a trumpet, sounded like a trumpet, talking with me and saying, Come up here, and I will show you the things which must be here afterwards. In other words, the voice said, I'm going to tell you things that are going to happen in the future. So, in chapter 2 and 3, we've seen the things which are, but now, from this chapter onwards, we're going to see the things that are going to happen in the future. And immediately, again, John was in the Spirit, it says, in other words, he's led by the Spirit to this vision. And he sees a throne set or standing. And the word standing has the, the idea of permanence. In other words, it's a throne of God. We know that because the one who sits on the throne, it says, look like jasper. That's another word for diamond. Sardius, that's another word for ruby. And, and they both represent a permanence. And there's a rainbow around the throne looking like an emerald. That probably, uh, scholars think, reflects their faithfulness and grace. All of these things that John sees, um, he's not saying that he saw an emerald, he's not saying he saw a diamond, he's not saying, saying necessarily even saw a rainbow. He's saying, the best I can describe it is sort of like, he's trying to describe the indescribable, he can't really tell us what he's seeing. The only way that you could really understand what he's seeing is if you'd have been stood there next to him seeing it. He can't really explain it. But he's saying sort of like uh, the nearest I can think. And he's bringing it down to, to a human level, a bit like a glassy sea. It wasn't a glassy sea, but that's the best he can do. So basically what he's seeing there is God on his throne in heaven. So John's now in heaven. And he's going to find out what's going to happen in the future. Things are happening, and heaven is actually going to act on earth. But first of all, before we find out that, we're told who is in heaven. It says round the throne are twenty four thrones, and on the thrones I saw four and twenty elders sitting clothed in white raiment, and they had heads of crowns on the, of gold on their heads. Now, uh, some people have said, ah, these must be angels. (coughs) Angels are actually called thrones in the New Testament, in Colossians 1 verse 16. That's a term for the ranks of angels. But nowhere in the Bible does it say that angels sit on thrones. Actually, it doesn't say that they sit anywhere. Um, From all the descriptions we have of angels in the Bible, they're always going somewhere, doing something. They don't sit down. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that we see angels reigning or ruling. In fact, we do see the opposite in Hebrews chapter 1. It says angels are actually ministering servants sent out to minister to us, God's people. So these aren't angels. We read on in verse 4, they have golden crowns on their heads. Crowns are never promised to angels anywhere. And the Greek word for crowns here is stephanos, which is the crown for somebody who wins a victory or overcomes personal trial. Angels don't struggle with sin. The ones who sinned were cast out of heaven. All the angels in heaven now are holy. They don't struggle with personal trials. They wouldn't be given a a crown to overcome personal trials. Chapter 2, verse 10, we get actually the promise of this crown is given to Christians. It says, be faithful to death and I'll give you the Stephanos of life. Therefore, it seems pretty clear that these are humans... These are God's people, these are Christians. Angels also wouldn't be called elders because they don't age. Angels, as far as we can tell, as I say, don't even sit. And they're not given crowns. Crowns are promised to believers. It says in verse 4, And I saw 24 elders sitting on them. Uh, The word elders there is presbyteros. It's the same word in the New Testament to to refer to leaders in the church. So it it seems pretty clear these are Christians with their leaders. There's no occasion in the Bible where the term elder is ever uh, related to angels. So this is the church. Um, The senior is rewards. The bearing of crowns usually signifies rewards. So this is probably the raptured church. The, The church now in heaven, raptured, having been rewarded. In fact, Jesus does say that at the rapture, he says, Behold, I come and my reward is with me. So he says, at the rapture, you get your reward because you're going up to heaven first thing that happens when you're raptured, you go to heaven, you get your rewards. So here are God's people. They have thrones, they have white robes, they have crowns, all of those things are promised to the church. Now there are some people, you may have heard, that think, well actually this might be Israel, not the church. But there is a problem with that, because by the time of this vision, Israel hasn't yet been saved. As it says in Romans 11 verse 26. There will be, all Israel, I'm not talking about individual Jews, that individual Jews have been saved throughout history, but Israel as a nation at some point will be saved. Paul says or God says through, through Paul. Uh, the tribulation hasn't begun The 144,000 haven't been sealed. The witness hasn't been given. All of these are things that are going to happen before Israel is saved. And Israel has not yet looked upon him whom they have pierced. That's another thing that we are told will happen before they're saved. So at this point in the vision, Israel as a nation hasn't been converted. They will be, but not yet. As I say, individual Jews have been converted, but not the nation. So this isn't Israel. It's Most certainly the church. In fact, if you read in chapter 7, that's when Israel is saved. So this can't represent the coronated and completed Israel. Now, before the throne, it says in verse 6, is a sea of glass like crystal. That's very similar to Ezekiel chapter 1. The four living creatures, they are angels. It describes them in some detail. And verses 9 to 11, they all worship. In other words, what this is telling us is that the theme of heaven, as John sees, is worship. That's what heaven is all about. It's worship. The angels are worshipping, the church is worshipping, everyone's giving praise and glory to God. That's the theme of heaven. It's a place where everyone worships God. But then, in chapter 5, something very interesting happens because the worship is broken. And it says, I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a scroll. This scroll is, in one sense, the title deed to the earth, to this planet. And it's sealed with seven seals. That was quite normal for a Roman will was sealed with seven seals. They would roll it up, seal it, roll it up a bit more, seal it, roll it up and so on. Seven times, really emphasising the fact that the only one can open this is the one whom it is given to. The one whom should open it. Nobody else can break the seals. So this is a will sealed seven times, it's God's will and testament and it's the testament to give the earth to Jesus Christ, that's the promise, God promises back in Psalm chapter 2 I will give you the nations for an inheritance and you will rule with a rod of iron that's to the Messiah, this is the fulfilment of that promise back there in in Psalm chapter 2 God has given the earth back to Jesus the promise to the Son, the title deeds and a strong answer to this proclaims, Who is worthy to open the scroll and loose its seals? In other words, who is the one who should be opening this sealed scroll? If it was today, it would be a book. The only reason it's a scroll is because in those days, that's what they had. They didn't have books, codecs as we have them. They had scrolls. And John was upset and he cries because no one was worthy. But then, one of the elders says, Don't cry because the Lion of the tribe of Judah the root of David he's worthy there is one who's worthy and obviously it's Jesus Christ Jesus Christ then steps forward in the midst of the living creatures the angels the elders he looks like a lamb it says seven horns and it looks as if he's been killed but then he's alive again which is obvious the horns represent full power seven again being a sort of representative of fullness Horns in those days represented power. You see that in the Old Testament. The, the, the power of an animal would be its horns. That's how people saw it. This lamb has seven eyes, which are a reference to perfect wisdom. Seven again, the, the number of uh, fullness. And they are from the sevenfold Spirit of God. It's Jesus Christ. So what you get here is Jesus, full of wisdom, the Spirit, full of power. And then we get an absolutely monumental moment Jesus Christ takes the scroll out of the hand of the one who sat on the throne. He takes the scroll from God the Father because he's the only one who can have it. And that marks the unfolding of everything that's going to happen at some time in the future. So he takes a scroll. In a sense he's saying, I'm going to take back earth. Paradise is going to be regained. But there's a few things going to happen. And the things that are going to happen before he actually does take back the earth are... In this scroll, this monumental event causes the response that you would expect—more worship. So heaven now is worshiping again. Verses eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen. Everyone in heaven is worshiping. Heaven is so excited because they're tired of the rebellion on earth, the tired of sin, the tired of all the people in this earth that reject God, that reject Jesus Christ. They're sick of it. And now they see, finally, at some point in the future, it's going to end. Finally, Jesus is going to take back earth. So they're excited and they give God glory, praise and worship. This culminates in a marvellous statement in verse 12. It says, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and blessing. You can hardly read that without hearing Handel's Messiah. That's what it's all about. So, what we're seeing there is God on the throne. He holds the title deeds to earth. Jesus takes the scroll from the Father, and that leads us to chapter 6. As the Lord Jesus then begins to unroll the scroll, as he does so, breaking each seal. Each seal. The broken reveals another thing that's going to happen at some point in the future, when the tribulation starts just after the rapture. Because the rapture is the event that starts the tribulation. I always like to think that one of the reasons that all hell breaks loose on earth is because as soon as the rapture occurs, all the Christians go up into heaven... And suddenly there's no Holy Spirit influence on earth. Just for that moment, people will begin to be saved. I mean, particularly the ones who have read about the rapture. And they suddenly realise where all the Christians have gone. So there will be people saved. But just for, for that moment, at the time of the rapture, there's no Holy Spirit influence on the planet. That's why all hell breaks loose. And it begins this seven year tribulation period. So what you get in the future, the rapture occurs, a seven-year tribulation period occurs immediately at that point, and at the end of the seven-year tribulation period, Jesus returns. The seven-year tribulation period is split into two halves. The first three and a half years are terrible, but the second three and a half years, are... Nick, the first three and a half, not look so bad, if that were possible. The first half of the tribulation starts with what uh, people know as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. All they are is just a description of what's actually going to happen during the first three and a half years. Because the first seal that's broken brings a false peace. It says, Then I saw, when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard the noise of thunder, as one of the four living creatures said, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it, had no bow. Notice, he has a bow, but no arrows. And a crown was given to him, and he went forth conquering, and to conquer. That's chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. He had a bow, but no arrows, which means he, he didn't have to have a war to conquer. In other words, what's going to happen, as soon as the church is raptured, a great leader will arise, who was obviously already there, and uh, for all we know, he might be alive today, we don't know. This great leader will take control, and he will conquer, but he won't do it with a war. He will do it, he will have military power, in other words, he's got a bow, remember in these days, they couldn't really say, and he had a machine gun, he had a bow, obviously, because that's what they used in these days, but he didn't have to use it, it's a peaceful conquering and this world leader brings world peace. Somebody's going to arise at some point in the future and he's going to bring a world peace and everyone's going to think what a marvelous man, what a great leader this is the Antichrist, this is the rise of the Antichrist and he gains power, he could have done it militarily but he doesn't have to because he brings this peace and everyone thinks he's great this starts the tribulation period on earth And it's a false peace. If we look at Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, we see the very same thing. He makes a pact with Israel, we're told, and sets up a false peace. It looks like peace, but it's not, because it doesn't last very long. Because if you read on in verse 4, the second seal is broken, and another horse comes out. This one isn't white, this one is red. And it says, Power was given to him that sat on the throne to take peace from the earth, that they should kill one another. The second seal is represented by a second horseman of the apocalypse, is war. Obviously the peace ends, therefore it's war. Which leads to the third seal, which is broken. The third seal is a black horse, and the one who sat upon it had a pair of balances in his hand. In other words, it's to to measure out. And it says in verse 6, this is what it measures out. A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius. Now, a quart of wheat in those days was just about enough to keep one person alive for one day. Denarius was a day's wages. So what this is saying is, you work a full day to make just enough for one person to eat. So if you've got a family of four and only one of you is working, you're in trouble. Now, barley was animal food, less nutritious, but you get a little bit more for the same price. In other words, this is famine condition. And then it says, do not hurt the oil and the wine. In those days oil and wine were staples. Wine particularly was drunk because water was often contaminated. It's not the same wine that we have today. Um, it was uh, basically a, a sort of a paste type thing that was fermented and it was, the water would be uh, diluted into it um, and what it basically did it, it sort of uh, made the water worth, you know, able to drink. You know, it um, helped with the contamination. It would kill off any contaminants. Um, you needed oil with the wheat to make bread. In other words, take care of the basic staples because you're not going to get much else. Don't damage the containers they're in because they're so precious. It's famine conditions, in other words. So far then, what you have at the rapture, church goes up, this great leader arises who's the Antichrist, he brings a false peace, which is followed by war because it's a false peace, which obviously then brings famine, which is obvious because all wars bring famine in some way and there's this worldwide war so there's obviously going to be a worldwide famine the fourth seal is obvious because that brings death, death always follows war and famine, verse 8 there came a rider on a pale horse, his name was death and hell followed after him and the power was given to them to over a fourth part of the earth to kill with the sword, with hunger and with death and the beasts of the earth And um, that would be a billion people today, the fourth part and by the way if you think of one of the beasts, uh, it's almost certainly not lions and tigers, that sort of thing. Uh, most likely it's rats. The most dangerous beast on earth, people will tell you, is the rat. More people have been killed throughout history by the rat than any other beast. So this is probably rats, which bring disease, the bubonic plague, and you know history. Then you come to the fifth seal, verse 9. And you find some people under the altar. These are the redeemed people, Christians, who have been killed so far during that period, during this three and a half years. Remember, as soon as the tribulation starts, although the church has gone up into heaven, people will start being saved. People will still continue to become Christians. But obviously, Christians are being killed, and these are the ones who have been killed and have gone immediately to heaven, because if you're a Christian, you get killed, you go straight to heaven. And they're at the throne of God and they are praying. And they're saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging avenging our blood on them that dwell on the earth? says there in verse 10. So these are people who have been saved during this time. Slaughtered most likely by the Antichrist. Not him personally, but his people. They come to heaven and they cry out to God. How long is this going to go on? How long are you going to do this? How long before you bring vengeance This section really is the premise on which the future discussion of Revelation is based. It says in verse 11 White robes were given to them, and it was said that they should rest for a time until their fellow servants and also their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. In other words, they're told, Be patient, this has to happen, it's going to run its course, more Christians will be killed, people will be saved. People will reject God, it's going to run its course, just be patient, it's got to get through. Wait until the rest of the martyrs are finished being martyred and then eventually Jesus Christ returns. So he's basically saying be patient. Then in verse 12 we get the sixth seal and there's a great earthquake. Now it gets bad. The sun become black as a sackcloth of hair and the moon becomes like blood. Joel talks about this. Uh, Peter also talked about this on the day of Pentecost, and it says the stars of heaven fell to the earth. Now, most translations there say stars. Actually, the Greek word for stars uh, is the same word for asteroids. So, most likely these are asteroids hitting the earth. Sun goes black, the moon goes red, and asteroids start falling from the sky. And then verse 14, the sky was split apart like a scroll. And the expression there is it's almost like when you pull down a blind on a window and then you let go of it and it suddenly rolls up and goes and it goes all the way around. And every mountain and every island were moved out of their places. In other words, worldwide cataclysmic events. You can imagine all this happening at once. Sky and the earth are beginning to fall apart, there's global earthquakes, continents splitting apart. And then obviously you have tremendous fear it says in verse 16-17 people scream for the rocks and the mountains to fall on them to hide them from the face of the one who sits on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb the great day of the wrath has come and who is able to stand in other words the people of earth at this point will suddenly realise that God is involved in all that's happening this is a realisation and they are terrified Notice they don't all get saved, which is what you would expect. They're just terrified of God. They're so terrified, we're told, that some will literally die from terror. Jesus himself said of that day, he says it in Luke 21, verse 26, people will faint from fear. And the Greek word in, in that uh, passage there means um, to uh, breathe your last. In other words, to die. They will just die out of fear. doesn't mean they just pass out. They'll literally die. Now, imagine John isn't just hearing about this like you are John is actually seeing this happen in front of him, it's almost like a video has been played, he's seeing it not just hearing it so God, as we see in Revelation, gives John a few periodic respites in a sense as he reveals all this horror to him and chapter 7 is one of those respites, he's given John a bit of a break here in other words, because it's so horrific We find in chapter 7 that there in the midst of all this There's some protection going on It's a little bit of encouragement for John Even in the midst of this terror There's going to be some blessing There's going to be some people spared from the judgement Who are they? We're told they are Christians And one of the groups is 144,000 Jews Out of every tribe Um, If you're reading this and you do wonder Where's Dan? Because it lists them but Dan's not listed The reason for that is that we read in Deuteronomy chapter 29 that Dan was omitted because of gross idolatry. But in case you're worried about Dan, Ezekiel 48 says, they are included in the kingdom, they are graciously restored, but they're just not allowed to serve in this particular ministry. But but that's why Dan's not mentioned. Now what does this say? We'll come to the end now of this week. In the middle of the week, when there's a real and terrible holocaust begins, because as I said, the second part... Of the three and a half years, of the seven years, the three and a half years is is really bad. But in the middle, already there will be Jews saved. There are Jews who have accepted Jesus Christ, they will go through the tribulation, but they won't be able to be killed. They're going to be sealed, they're going to be protected. Because God wants witnesses on the planet, because all the way through this terrible seven years, we see what in effect is the greatest um, witnessing, the greatest revival, the greatest amount of people being saved than at any other period in history. Lots of people are going to be saved. I mean, if you're going to be saved, you know, you want to do it before the tribulation to be honest, because that's not the best time to be saved, but there are going to be people who will be saved. And in the second half of the tribulation, there will be 144,000 Jews preaching the gospel. And they're going to be very effective because it says in verse 9, a great multitude that nobody could number. Lots of people will be saved. And there are people from every tribe and every nation being saved as a result of the preaching of the 144,000. And then, of course, as a result of that, there's even more worship in the rest of chapter 7. That brings us to the seventh seal and the second half of the tribulation but like John we're going to have a respite here because it's now quarter to so I'm going to take a break and we're going to do the rest of this next Wednesday I'll just turn off